they have like really rigorous temp score that they give me, which usually consists of 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 edited, stitched together pieces of records that they like, not other score, but things they like in 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 pre-recorded music that they cut up so finely that it totally destroys the linearity of the original song. And they're really just using it to show you beats and spikes and dynamics and all this stuff. So it's really interesting. And happy holidays. Welcome back to episode number 15 of The Fourth Wall. I'm your host, Griffin Schiller, and this is the show where we break down the fourth wall of the film industry as we get an inside look through our conversations with industry professionals, ranging from directors, actors, you name it. This show is, of course, part of the Playlist Podcast Network, where you can find our weekly film discourse show discussing the latest releases, along with the rest of our diverse film-centric catalog, with shows such as Indie Beat, Be Real, much more. Whatever your fix is, we got you covered over there. Support for this episode is brought to you by 20th Century Fox presenting Ford vs. Ferrari, nominated for Best Picture by the Critics' Choice Awards and starring Matt Damon and Christian Bale, who is nominated for a Golden Globe and Screen Actors Guild Award for Best Actor. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Uh, I was actually not able to conduct the interview this time around uh, due to some unforeseen circumstances. I won't bore you with the details, but I was able to find assistance from fellow playlist contributor Andrew Bundy, who came in in a pinch, really uh, helped me with this one, and actually did a phenomenal job. This is a great interview that I think you all are going to love, but the big question is, who is this week's guest? Well, if you clicked on the episode, then you'll know that our guest this week is none other than Daniel Lopatin, the composer of Uncut Gems, or Oniatrix Point Never, as some of you know him as. Daniel is one of the best composers in the industry, and you can tell just by listening to him talk about music, of movies, for just a few minutes, how much love he has for creativity. As I mentioned earlier, some of you may know him by his music persona, Oniatrix Point Never. He's known best in more cinephile circles for his frenetic score to the Safdie Brothers, Rat Maze, Adrenaline Rush, Good Time, which made the playlist best soundtrack of the decade list, I might add. Uncut Gems, starring Adam Sandler as a self-absorbed gambling addict and jewel salesman, is one of the year's best performances. It's one of my personal favorite performances. Hell, you know what? I'm going to go out there and say it. I think Adam Sandler's performance in Uncut Gems might be my favorite performance of the year, and Lopatin's latest collaboration with the Safties is probably one of the best scores of the year, too. And so if it's any indication, their effective amplification of colorful energy shows no signs of slowing down. Just listening through this episode, Daniel is a very laid-back, straightforward individual. I love how he brought up how the East Coast influences him, how the Safties utilize temp music, I think the answer to that will surprise you for you soundtrack fans out there. Uh, And overall, this is just a very wholesome and enjoyable conversation that I think you all are going to love. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Mr. Daniel Lopatin. 
I'm curious when you're um, when you're starting a project, um, are you thinking at all about the songs and the scores separately? Because the way you use the Iggy Pop track in like Good Time or the end credit song of this or the the various songs like The Weekend throughout and stuff, is that part of all part of the design process? How you're designing the score around the songs or? Um, I'm just focusing on the score. Okay. So uh, the the any uh, diegetic music in the film that actually we didn't make any of that that was all it was all synced so the the, the weekend piece is an older uh older song of his um although we did uh we did try to um utilize like one piece that abel and i uh wrote together in the studio for the end credits um uh uh but we it didn't end up going with it. So it was going to be sort of like an Iggy OPN type thing. But they ended up um, being really happy with that Gigi D'Agostino piece, which is like a very necessary palate cleanser at the end of a very intense film. So uh, and kind of launches you out of the theater and back into reality in a way that um, uh, Abel and I's ballad did not. So, so very happy with that piece. But yeah, generally, uh, generally speaking, I'm really just dealing with score. Okay, cool. And um, do you pre-work on stuff at all? Like when they send you the script, do you wait until you see footage? It's no, I I might I might do some research, but it's basically it's basically useless because the the impetus for for uh, our the sort of the, the apotheosis moment of a collaboration between myself and the Softy brothers are we in the studio and they're reacting to a particular sound, not a melody, not any kind of um, musical progression, but a texture, a feeling, a sound that they want me to write with. So it's really about finding almost those tools, those colors and presenting those colors and then seeing if they perk up and, and then then I'm able to very carefully sort of trace all of their, um, they have like really rigorous temp score that they give me, which is, um, usually consists of, of, of edited stitched together pieces of records that they like, not other score, but things they like in, in, in pre-recorded music that they cut up so finely that it totally destroys the linearity of the original song. And they're really just using it to show you beats and spikes and dynamics and all this stuff. So it's really interesting. It's very different. So I have all of my directions. Uh, What I, what I'm meant to really deliver on is, is the color, the feeling, the texture of the sound, that quality that will inspire them. Cool. It almost sounds kind of like a, a sizzle reel temp track kind of thing or something. It's just very, yeah, it's a very, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's totally just them. Josh is such a muso that his, ta- his, his, the way he thinks about score is almost like kind of from like a crate digging fan. And he wants score to have that sort of uh, quality of sort of like uh, in a way of unearthing some lost recording. The music I make as OPN, I think, feeds into... Uh, feeds into his his needs from a score any, quite naturally because um, I tend to composite lots of different styles together and do lots of things kind of dealing with the with histories of electronic music, ways to coax different periods out of a synthesizer, stuff like that. So 
cool. Um, you mentioned color, and obviously like, color and texture is a very important part of their like visual storytelling. So is that something that you're thinking about actively is the score as well? Like, do you try to like color motifs like as, along with like the, the music stuff you're doing? or? Um, I think color in the sense that I'm really like tethering my score to to their characters. It was it was similar. It was similar in Good Time, where it's like you're just the score is 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 almost kind of a the latent internal world of your main character and all of the sort of aff, affectively charged moments up or down or whatever they're going through is amplified by the score. So it's almost not to suggest like what the, what is going to happen sort of plot wise or what the arc of the story is, but more the sort of affective or psychological, uh, 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 sort of, uh, moment to moment state of Howard Ratner and gems or Connie and good time. It's a kind of, they're kind of the scores function in a similar way. And with a movie like this, or I guess Good Time, where the score is so intense, do you ever worry about, I guess, I don't know, making it almost too unbearable for the audience? Like the buzzer scene, which is amazing. It's just, it's just so tense, though. Like, do you ever wonder if there's like a breaking point? Um, I usually come into a, a, a collaboration with a director with a little bit of, of, um, of a conservative approach where I really do want to just kind of listen and understand what they want and and sort of hold back on all of the insanity however with the softy brothers it's just functionally impossible because what they want is like maximum kind of amplification of the affective state of their character so it's almost kind of like and we were what we were at the new beverly yesterday watching murder by contract oh, and it was incredible Such a good movie. And they played a uh, Mighty Mouse cartoon right before. And I'm just looking over at Josh because there's all this amazing sound design stuff and really clever use of, uh, of sort of orchestra to, to um, kind of itself like be a secondary animation layer to show you not even emotionally, but like physically what, the, what characters are doing and, and how to how to how to kind of sit in that space with the characters, and we're just laughing because it's exactly what we do. So yeah, yeah, I think of the, the end of Murder by Contract. Yeah, that's it's very similar to your guys' style. Yeah, yes, that's awesome. That, that's awesome. that that minimalist guitar, uh, which is actually looped. You can hear the you can hear the tape cut because it's every four or five seconds you hear a kind of a like disintegration of 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 the rhythm slightly, like a little bit of a wavering. It's absolutely unique. It's 1958, and they were doing like stuff that uh, you know Steve Reich was messing with, or like if you listen to my record Replica, a lot of it sounds kind of like the, the Murder by Contract 1958 guitar loop. Oh, that's awesome. Kind of more like twangy though, not obviously not as synthy. Being so oh, for stuff. sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Texturally different, but but that yeah that that formal sense of like one thing over and over just kind of hammering at you slowly over a long period of time it was so fascinating yeah but um do you like to go back to like old composer composers and mind influence like that like old 50s movies stuff like that um yeah i do i do and i one of the one of the the first uh the first things that we were all kind of discussing as a possible um uh touchstone for the gem score was um 
was the alienation, uh, like the rejected score by Jerry Goldsmith for alienation that mm-hmm. wasn't used. That's like a mixture of orchestral and, and, uh, synth stuff. It was like really hard biting cold FM synthesis with Jerry's like totally, uh, luscious, gorgeous string stuff. And, um, and that was just sort of an idea that we were batting around, but something that really did influence us that was kind of us like digging through was um, there was a pair of, of YouTube clips that we found Evangelist improvising. And these were pieces of music that weren't necessarily on record. And what he was doing was sitting sort of uh, in square circle or whatever, surrounded by instruments. And he sort of designates each synthesizer as a sort of component aspect of an orchestra. So you have your brass stuff coming from one keyboard and you have your strings coming from another one. And he's sort of surrounded, like flanked on all sides by these choices. And then he's just kind of in intuitively just reaching for different things and trying stuff out and creating this very interesting bouquet of sounds that sort of drip into each other. And we, I had seen those before and sort of like put that away somewhere in the, in the recesses of my mind. And then Josh dug it up and he's like, this is how we should compose the music. It shouldn't, it shouldn't have that very like linear uh, kind of modern production thing that we were doing on good time where everything is on grid and it's very rhythmic and it's almost like a techno record at times. Um, we really wanted to get to this, kind of free flow of just intuitively reaching for a sound and reacting, looping up something here and then playing over it lyrically. And then um, I set up my studio that way. I put, you know, I I mounted these six synthesizers on the wall. We hardwired them up. So all of them were piping into Pro Tools the entire time. I'm looping things, I'm reacting to things, and I'm not worried at all about arrangement. And then we start fine-tuning, listening back, seeing what works, and then really applying that to that to that sort of rigorous uh, temp score um, uh, uh, map that Josh had created. So it was a much different process that was inspired quite a lot by those evangelists. Okay. just want to be clear. So in that part of the process, it did have been cut together. And when you're doing the experimenting and stuff, when you're the film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're we de- I definitely have the film in front of me. So I've sort of ingested it. I've reacted to it. But now my back is turned to to the the film itself. And I'm just playing. And and there's this sort of ping pong uh, uh, approach where you know, you see what works, you install it, you move things around, see how it sits against the film. If it doesn't, then, uh, well, that was an interesting experiment, but try again. So, um, yeah, it was, it, it, it was a sort of, uh, kind of informal approach to begin that gets, that gets sort of rigorously sort of reworked and refined until it sits exactly and hits all those beats that they want. Yeah, because I imagine you may like one scene maybe, frankly, like too intense, and then oh, we got to tone that scene down a bit because we want the next scene to maybe play a little more intense. Is there kind of looking at the big picture as opposed to like almost the set pieces, for lack of a better word, of like the big adrenaline rush sequences? Uh, yeah, there's that. There's 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 definitely, um, and in this score in particular, there's a lot. There's a lot more dynamism in terms of intensity level. There's kind of all that blissed out kind of new agey stuff that's happening. There's a few scenes that are almost 
um, like a module like you could take out of good time and plug into uh, uncut in terms of score. Uh, you know, usually when Ratner is uh, experiencing physical threat. Um, so uh, there's um, uh, a piece um, that's very interesting, uh, sort of from my perspective anyway, to score it, which is Howard and Julia have this sort of confrontation while he's getting into the cab after the club. And, um, and it, it's actually instigated by this scream. Julia lets out this like massive wailing shout and we were talking a lot about how that's almost that needs to be like a sculptural moment in the score that's connected to the scream so we need the right sound to scream with her and then you launch into this uh hide-in piece that was a kind of a reworked uh symphony number 88 g major uh piece of music that we put kind of in our own vernacular or whatever but um yeah, to answer your question, um, because this film has, you know, Ratner goes on these wildly uh, um, circuitous paths through his imagination all the time. Sometimes he's super high, sometimes he's super low. He's a compulsive gambler. So he, there's a manic sense to him, but he's also someone that really has this rich kind of sense of a world beyond the, the material uh, 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 trappings that he's kind of like dealing with is like a midtown hustler. So, so that's yet another layer of, of, of dynamism I can play with because he'll take you as far as like, you know, he'll take you into his colon or he'll take you out into the cosmos or he'll bring you in, in on a sail uh, or he'll bring you to Long Island and have you see this other kind of texture of his life that he's compartmentalized. So, so it was really fun to play with that stuff. After I don't know, like Good Time seemed to be so successful. Was did you guys want to like do like ramp it up even more? Was kind of the idea like can we take this rat in a maze kineticism like even further? Like- maybe maybe intu- uh, maybe intuitively uh, there was some of that, but I think we it was just uh, uh, a story that they wanted to tell for a very long time, like preceding uh, good time was sort of kind of an ancillary thing that they did on the way to telling this story to making this film. It's like been a, a very uh, intense journey for them personally to get to the point where they, they kind of had all the right uh, circumstances to tell the story. So I think for them, they've had this in mind for for a hell of a lot longer than than we did good time for for me it was they 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 uh sit very snug together they're friends the, those two films oh definitely i even there's, i think there's a couple times where um they even ask like you're having a good time or something i was just like ah no, you know, yeah. yeah um so do you like look at your work at all too in terms of like other stuff going on right now like um like i really like what um trent Reznor and atticus ross are doing on Watchmen. are you like um i haven't seen it yet. yeah oh, okay well i really love hilder Okay, I love her stuff. I haven't seen the Joker yet, but I thought what she did with Chernobyl is like absolutely classy and beautiful. Um, uh, Mika is a good friend of mine, and uh, I really, really appreciate what she's doing. Um, um, so there are a few, but um, typically I'm like such a sponge. I'm such like a mimetic kind of person that I actually f- try to force myself to to almost kind of like not let influences in 
because I know that uh, it, it'll just like spin me out in all these different directions and inspire me in ways that I don't want. I actually just sometimes want this sort of Zen cone of the, the in the sort of internal space I've created to kind of come up with original things. So I t- sometimes purposely avoid uh, avoid listening to to other composers because they really do have such an impact on me. Then I'm, I'm curious, were you familiar at all with like the world of this movie? Or like, cause you mentioned that this has been um, something the Safdies wanted to tell for a while. I'm pretty clueless about like sports betting, pawn shop stuff. So was that anything you had, I don't know, felt the need to research a little bit to kind of inject a bit of flavor into that? I did. Or? I did. I did. In fact, I don't th- I think I brought this up um, um, too often, but now that looking back, I did bet, did some in-game betting on basketball games in the studio while I was composing. (laughs) And it was just, it was exactly that kind of, you just, it's not something I want to make a habit of for obvious reasons, but when you do it, you do kind of immediately understand the appeal. I mean, it just makes every second of whatever you're betting on four times. It just amplifies the excitement level of whatever you're, you're, you're into. So uh, that did help. Because it kind of like, okay, I get how the energy ratchets, ratchets it up while you sort of progress through some kind of game or get to some sort of omega point or whatever. Um, uh, but no, typically I'm just kind of doing doing my thing. Okay, cool. Do you, do you um, discuss like thematics at all? Like where the, the headspace of the character, is that just something that comes out or something you talk about with um, Safties at all or... A lot, yeah. We spent a lot of time talking about Howard's world and his sort of his drives. I think that's that's pretty much that's pretty much the key in this in this film. Again, maybe I've already mentioned this, but there is this kind of contrasting thing going on between the, the his sort of material reality and his in, in internal dreams, and he believes he really does believe that he's connected. Uh, to this spiritual realm through this opal, he's it's not um, particularly um, fantastical sounding to him, and you can see it when he's kind of it's it's in his eyes, and that's also credit to to uh, Adam Sandler's incredible performance in this film, is that he's he might be kind of like a, a schlamazel on some levels but he's absolutely sincere and he absolutely is trying to elevate him and in a sense everyone that he kind of cares about with him through this process even if it's in very strange ways so this this um that there's a clumsiness to him uh and that but then there's this kind of uh whimsy and this um um poetry to him that he sees the world in a poetic way the clumsiness the poetry that's what i tried to put sort of in orbit with one another in the score one thing i also really like about his character is he almost feels like an entitled sense of belonging to like the things (laughs) yeah like involved in worlds that he's not really in that kind of stuff so i thought i don't know for me this the score was kind of um (laughs) served as a good contrast for that too of like the multiple worlds he's kind of existing in yeah, he's he's very brave. He'll just insert himself into whatever is a, is the situation at hand. Because he's like obviously such a self-absorbed protagonist and stuff. Um, is that something you, I don't know, like you don't want to let yourself get too carried away, but you ever think something like, all right, well, I, this score is going to be a little indulgent because the character indulges in himself. Well, um, I don't know if if 
that is necessarily a factor. I think it's just kind of like the ta- Softy Brothers taste. They really, the thing that frightens them the most is a score that just kind of like lulls you into, coaxes you into into the safe, safety and warmth of just like this filament that's at the bottom that just kind of sits out of out of the way of things. So, um, you know, maybe it is a uh, very dense score. Maybe it's a few dB louder than uh, a another director might want the score, but I would say that the uncomfort that you feel is a is is purposefully there as but that is also given to you with all the other things you feel. There's like a, it's a it's a wildly kind of lush score with tons of sort of um, melodic uh, um, character. And it allows itself to change stylistically from one cue to the other. So it does all of these things that, to me, is very giving and very comforting. As like a, as like a a, a fan of films that uh, that are like wild and take chances, I don't find it to be overbearing or uncomfortable. I find it to be very giving. So it's never like you feel like you need to restrain yourself. Kind of the idea is you can let that wildness go. Yeah, if we do it right and if we if we do it honestly, then it should be a reward. And and that's what we've tried to to focus on is it for it to, to be like a gratuitously rewarding and fun journey if if there's and then the dynamics are just what what they are. It's like if you're watching a horror film and you're not made to feel uncomfortable at all, then it might be worth reconsidering uh you know the 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 sort of lattice work that was in place there to to that that may have not allowed you to feel that so so you know what i mean i think it's there's a um it's our taste but it's also a belief that this is good for you you know my mom used to always like crush up advil and put it in with a, like strawberry jam when i was sick when i was a kid cuz i was like like hated pills and you couldn't look at them so you just find a, a way to sneak the medicine in with this this sweet thing and i think on some level um that's been sort of something that brought me and the softies together because we both did that um separately like in our in their films my music oh, totally yeah because um first time i saw good time like i really liked the film but it wasn't until the last shot with pattinson in the vehicle and that release and then the crossing the line thing with Iggy Pop and just like you guys said it's like almost like a healing process the way you let the catharsis let you breathe through it so uh, yeah so I mean you guys you're obviously thinking about designing the film towards that but there's like a pressure like the ending has to deliver uh, there's never any pressure it's honestly we just know especially them they really really know where they're going there's there's very little like parachuting out into the unknown um they uh, there's a, a there's a, they definitely have the last two films i would say are on some level like action thrillers and uh, they just their characters are much more textured and nuanced than like i don't know like uh something that's just meant to kind of titillate you but um those dynamics are pretty clear right like if you need if we need to go up here then we're going to go go up if we need to go down here we're going to come down yeah and I guess just for me, what's like, even though like during the film, you're very aware that you're watching thriller kind of movie, 
at the end of their movies, you kind of realize, oh, I, I knew what movie I was watching, but maybe I didn't know what movie I was watching. <laughs> and I think that's what's so phenomenal about the endings they build to. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, that's very true if I think about the good time ending um, where you're, you're shot out of this intense scenario and then you're just forced to deal with reality, which is uh, this classroom with, with um, disabled children. And, and they're just kind of like dealing with the rest of their lives from that point on. And uh, the, the sort of pomp uh, and circumstance of, 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 of the escape and running from the cops and all that stuff is just, it's just you put the brakes on all that stuff and you just look at reality at that moment with that with the Iggy song. So uh, <clears throat> we have a very different kind of conclusion with this one. I won't go into it, but for sure, yeah, don't want to spoil the movie for people. No, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, I think there is there is that kind of thing that they're playing with where they're really committed to this idea of verite, but they're also completely. Um, wildly into like phantasmagorical stuff and when they they refuse to compartmentalize those things they have to kind of uh invoke both at the same time so you end up with these science fiction kind of uh uh, renditions of otherwise very real like street level tales yeah, well, again, don't want to ruin the film for people, but thinking about the bookending device is just something few other people would probably choose to do in a film like this. For sure. Um, yeah. So you started, good, they reached out to you for Good Time, right? You hadn't worked with them before until then? No, I had known about them, and I had seen Heaven Knows What, and they were familiar also with my record, so we were kind of uh, kind of in the same uh, orbit in, in the city, um, kind of knew about each other, but yeah, they just invited me over to their office. Uh, I came in, I saw... Uh, King of New York poster on the wall next to an Akira poster and that pretty much told me everything I needed to know and then a couple hours later I was leaving and I was like I mean even if we don't do this film I kind of just want to hang out with these guys so yeah. um, it was it was a really like a good healthy kind of fast friend situation and then we just dug dug our heels in and just started working together well I mean, you mentioned one of the obviously the trademark things is kind of like the restlessness of the narrative so do you think that ever like is that reflect on them as artists do they need to like get their stuff out or do you ever feel like pressured as an artist is that maybe at all why the characters in the movies can't like have so much going on well, that's interesting. I think it could be like an East Coast thing too, where we're all a little bit ratnered out. Like everyone's on their grind. Everyone feels a lot of pressure to keep keep themselves afloat. Uh, it's a strange place with people above you, below you, to the side. Uh, everyone's selling you something all the time. You can kind of uh, reinvent yourself on any city block. If it rains and you get poured on, uh, you can get drive for like under five bucks and be wearing a brand new outfit uh it probably will be some weird knockoff t-shirt or whatever but you'll you can just constantly find yourself in a new scenario and with a fresh start every uh you know like 10 to 20 feet in front of you so uh i think that energy is just there and uh it probably translates I mean, musically for me, I've always, and this is probably some reason why we come together, but um, I, I I never was able to separate noise, like cacophony, uh, even silence, weird gaps, nonlinear kind of uh, 
uh, uh, way of listening to music from music itself. I wanted music to sound like the way that I just hear everything. And so that became kind of a way of uh, a feature of how I would approach composing. Like I like using noise. I like thinking about uh, where things can stop, where things can fragment, where things can disintegrate, where things can feel more or less unreal and feel not so much like uh, music, but more just like like the texture of 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 life. And that's an unpredictable texture. You'll you'll be in an airtight room one second with no sound. You'll step out. You'll hear. 17 people on a phone. So uh, those those things have always influenced me uh, on a composition level, and I try to abstract those principles and put them in the music. I went to, I, for a while, I, I, w- I was on this track to be a librarian. What I really wanted to do was do reference because uh, I thought that it was kind of the most interesting, the most invaluable thing you could do when you walk into a a library is like head to that desk and talk to a person who's really, really committed to this idea that if you have a question, they might unearth some things you haven't thought of, some ways to some pathways into an idea based on this sort of wellspring of knowledge that's come before you. So uh, I'm always open to that. I really am not. Um, I'm not. I'm not wildly future forward necessarily. Although, um, although I'm. It's 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 completely refreshing to me history. Like I can go there and, and feel like it's going to give me uh, a future, even if it's, if, if it's things that have already occurred. Well, it seems though with, um, I guess the changes in like the popularity of music genres and like Bandcamp, SoundCloud, that kind of stuff that more synth electronic based scores are becoming like the norm as opposed to more classical stuff. So I don't know. Do you think like does stuff like sound, SoundCloud and um, Bandcamp, is that affected composing do you think at all as well like the way music the music industry is changing well i think i i don't know uh because i'm maybe i'm so kind of in it that i i have a hard time kind of seeing it from the outside but i know for me personally i was making you know i was doing bedroom recording synth stuff in the early o's and my friends were kind of encouraging me to get online with it or have a myspace or share my music or that would be the that would be my a uh, uh, way to bridge into reality. And I was, I was so, um, so down for that. It just felt completely uh, native to me to, to do that. So I think the more that people live with the internet as this kind of um, this, this everyday utility the more the more it will just become reality and less novel let's say that we all have access to a million different records to listen to or have access to each other can communicate can pool resources can talk to each other can give each other advice i think the stuff where 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 all that stuff gets really interesting for me is that it creates a, a sort of um sense of community when it's legitimate and people are really actually reaching out to try to support each other, help each other, prop each other up. It's really incredible. Inversely, it makes some people more and more insular, more and more disconnected, just kind of doing everything for an audience of one. Even if it is on the internet, it's really just like a feedback loop. You 
like upload something and you just have like an array of people doing doing this one activity without ever really connecting to each other, you know? Um, so I think it comes with, with its good uh, sides and its bad. When you finish a product, you look at the, at the, the final the final product. Is it uh, easy for you to look at it or is it ever, you're ever like an actor and you're like, oh, I don't like what happened in that? Yeah, it's it, there is this, so uh, you can't help but, and it's not even nitpicking. It's like there's just things where you're like, Oh man, if I'd had another four days on that, but, uh, I've, I've seen the film. It really also depends on the screening, like, uh, the room, the acoustics, Skip, the guy that did the mix for the, uh, for this, the score and the film itself, the sound mix, um, is an absolute genius. So he was able to take very, very dense material very dense, very layered uh, uh, dialogue, very dense, very layered um, score and make it work. So um, it's been a really good, nice experience for me, mostly because of my my score. Um, uh, mixer Matt Cohn did an incredible job. And then from there, Skip took it and just uh, refined it, polished it, and made it like really uh, interesting. So... I'm really attached to it kind of on a geeky, like technical level. When I see it, I'm just like, oh, it sounds so good. It sounds so polished. Because I only ever really, I'm in there for the dirty part. But <laughs> for sure. But musically, um, musically, always, I'm always like, come on. there. I could have just done that a little bit better or whatever, but uh, unavoidable. Okay, cool. And I guess last thing, any hint? Do you know what's next for you and the Safties or can't say yet? Or? Can't say yet. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah. But but thanks for asking. Of course, I, can't, we, I think all our all our readers and view, our listeners can't can't wait for what you guys do next. So super. Yeah. So thank you. Thanks for talking. Appreciate with us. it. Yeah. Well, there you have it, guys. That was our conversation with Daniel Lopatin. What a delightful guy. So nice. Uh, I'm really glad Andrew was able to get the opportunity to talk to him once again. Thank you, Andrew for filling in for me. It was uh, really awesome. If you want to hear more of what Andrew has to say, you can give him a follow on Twitter at AndrewJB2517. Daniel's score for Uncut Gems is now available digitally, so you can go stream that on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you listen to your stuff. And Uncut Gems is now playing in New York and LA and will be expanding to more theaters in the coming weeks. I think most places are getting it around Christmas and uh, what a what a real Christmas present that film is going to be. So definitely, if that film is playing in your area, seek it out and see it with an audience because it is truly one of the best cinematic experiences of the year. And I'm sure many of you will enjoy it. But the most important thing is I want to hear from you all. I want to know what your favorite film score of the year is down in the comment section below of wherever you're listening to this episode. Be sure, as always, to subscribe to the playlist podcast network for more episodes of the fourth wall along with the rest of our diverse film-centric catalog and 
if you want to go that extra mile and you really want to make me happy and give me a great Christmas present, it would be amazing if you left us a rating and a review as it greatly helps the show out. It helps us get noticed and it allows me to know what you're all loving and what you want to see more of. I do believe this is going to be our final episode of 2019, so I just want to say thank you all so much for supporting the show, for listening to these episodes. If this is your first time tuning into The Fourth Wall, Go back and listen to some of the other amazing conversations we've had throughout the course of this year. It's really been a privilege being able to do this show with you all, uh, and I hope we're able to continue it into the next year with some amazing guests. Uh, th- this was an absolute delight. If you like me specifically and you like what I have to say, you can give me a follow on Twitter at Griff Schiller. All right. I hope you all have a very safe and happy holiday, and I'll catch you all in the new year. Take care.